You're listening to a podcast from Grace Church in Salado, Texas. For more information and resources just like this, visit us online at gracesalado.com. All right, most of you stayed. Thank you. You run that risk when you announce that the pastor's not here. How many of you were actually going to leave after that? Uh, actually, uh, in spite of what happened this last week, I was scheduled to fill in for Jason today. He was going to be over at First Baptist as part of that missions focused, and so he was not going to be here this Sunday anyway, and as it turns out, uh, it, it worked out uh, in that case. Uh, several weeks ago, Puckett shared a message with us, and, and Puckett explained to you how as the elders would get together to determine who was going to share a message, we drew straws. And how Puckett drew the short straw and therefore was sharing the message a few weeks ago. What he didn't tell you is, immediately after that, even though I had won, I said, hey, let's go double or nothing. Now I'm here this morning. So, (laughs) never very good at that kind of uh, thing. With Jason not being here, we're going to, I know we just jumped back into Philippians last week. We're going to take another break from Philippians. Uh, I'm not sure that I would do the passage the justice it deserves. First of all, and second of all, Jason has been very passionate about this and really wants to share this, and so, Lord willing, we'll be back in Philippians uh, next week when when he returns. Uh, Instead, this morning, what I want to do is share a message that I've been wrestling or thought about for about the last six weeks or so. It comes from a Bible study we did about that time where, when I read it, I was kind of amused at first, and I just kind of enjoyed the amusement of the scripture, and we're going to look at it here in a minute. But then after a while, I just started working on me. I started thinking, wow, there's really a message here. And that message started impacting me. And hopefully it will be an impact to you. And so that's uh, that's what we want to cover this morning. So it was read a little bit earlier. It will be up on the screen. But if uh, Acts chapter 1, and uh, they started with uh, verse 6. I want to start in verse 9. I just want to look at 9, 10, and 11. Acts chapter 1, verses 9, 10, 11. After he had said this, he meaning Jesus, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him up out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Father God, I'm thankful for the message that uh, you've shared with me. I just pray that you speak through me. I'm just merely a vessel. And if there's somebody here this morning that needs to hear this, that uh, my words will not be fumbled and the message will be clear to them. I thank you for this opportunity. pray this in your name. Amen. Now, to set the stage here a little bit, what we see here is the very end of Jesus' time on earth after his resurrection. We know that he was on earth for 40 days. How do we know that? Well, in verse 3 of Acts 1, Luke writes, Luke, the, the author of Acts, says that he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. So we know that he had been there for 40 days. Now, there's not a lot of details about this period of time. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Gospels barely touch on it. 
John talks a little bit more, has uh, the account of them fishing and Jesus on the shore, but not much is known about this period of time, this 40-day period. But we can tell from the little bit we see there was a time of fellowship, it was a time of mentorship, it was a time of teaching as Jesus spent time with them. And this culminates in Acts 1.8, which is the parallel passage for Matthew 28, the Great Commission, where he basically challenged them, says, go and tell, go and make disciples. And that leads us into the passage we started with. After that, he ascends into heaven. Where I was humored by is actually the imagery in verse 10. Think about it. Here are at least 11 men. And they're standing there like this. And there's something about that imagery that kind of amuses me. And there may actually have been more than just the 11 disciples. We know that Jesus had a number of followers. And so while they say they were there, there could be even more than that. People standing there staring into the sky. I'm not sure why it humored me. Maybe it humored me because it reminded me when I was a kid we occasionally played something we called the look-up game. I don't know if it actually has a title. We just called it the look-up game. And this works much better if you are in an urban environment than a rural setting. And this is sort of like snipe hunting. If you grew up in snipe hunting, we, we played the look-up game. And here's how it would go. A group of us would go stand on the street corner in Denver. And one of you would go and stand on the corner and stare up at a building imagining that you're looking at something sort of like that and what the goal was is people would walk by if they stopped and glanced up to see what you were looking at you got a point if the people stopped and asked you what you were looking at you got two points and if they stopped and asked you what you were looking at and then thought they saw the imaginary thing that you were looking at that was worth five points. And then we'd rotate, and whoever got the most points won. Little did I know back then as a teen that this is actually, the lookup game comes from the Bible. Because we see that here in verse 10. They're standing there staring up into heaven. Now, we really probably need to give these guys a break, these followers, because if we think about what has happened the last 44, 45 days, they enter in Jerusalem victoriously. Then all of a sudden Jesus is betrayed, arrested, tried, convicted, beaten to a pulp, hauled out on the cross, as we sang about earlier. He's di he dies. He's buried. They're worried. They scatter. They're concerned. And all of a sudden he reappears to them. And for 40 days he's with them and at this point they're probably thinking wow hey it's back to to situation normal even though he said he was going to be with the father they asked him when he's going to go be with the father yet they probably got comfortable business as usual and then all of a sudden jesus descends ascends into heaven yeah uh, we can probably say they're going uh okay what happens next we also uh, can't, uh, shouldn't overlook the fact of the scripture we see here. It says that, that Jesus ascended in the clouds. We need to understand that, that more than likely this is not a cute white little puffy cloud that he just kind of floats up on. All other reference in scripture, this is probably known as the Shekinah. 
The Shekinah is God's glory here on earth, and we see this throughout Scripture. Think about it. In the Old Testament, when God led them across the desert, it was this powerful cloud of, of awesome wonder. That's the Shekinah. It was over the tabernacle. It was up on Mount Sinai when Moses was up there. It was the same cloud that we see when Jesus went on the mountain for the transfiguration. It's powerful. It's ominous. It is loud. It is not just this puffy little cute cloud. It's sort of like if we've been here, we've seen it off in the distance, those huge thunderclouds at 40,000 feet in the air and lightning coming and all the rest of that stuff. And we sometimes see that and we go, so more than likely, we need to give them a little bit of a break. Ezekiel also highlights what a cloud meant back then. Ezekiel 30, verse 3, he says, For the day is near, a day belonging to the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds and a time of doom for the nations. Clouds had this, this uh, ominous sense. So we give them a little bit of a break. But even that, Scripture seems to indicate that they may have been staring aimlessly just a little bit too long. Continuing in verse 10, we see it says, Suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them, and they said, verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? In essence, these angels that are standing there, they're looking at these guys, and they're saying, What? What are you looking for? What are you looking for and that's what suddenly hit me on my heart when we seek Jesus what are we looking for this year what are we looking for I want to look at this a little bit more now we see a similar question that was posed about six weeks earlier if we recall the morning of Easter women go to the tomb and why are they going to the tomb? They need to prepare the body because in the rush to get Jesus buried prior to the Sabbath, they put him in the tomb. They didn't properly prepare him. Luke uh, captures it this way. Luke 24 says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood beside them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down the ground. And the men asked, why are you looking for the living among the dead? In essence, they're saying, what are you looking for? Well, what were they looking for? They were looking for a dead body. That's what they expected to find. Even though they had heard what he told them, even though they had experienced some of the miracles, even though they may have been present when some of his miracles were done, and he told them that he would come back, dead men don't rise from the grave. Reality tells them that. And so even though they may have hoped for the best, they expected the worst. They expected to find Jesus in that tomb. Well, what about us? When we are looking, when we are seeking Jesus, are we looking for the risen Lord? The one that is above all things, the one who has ultimate power and authority over all things, rose from the dead and is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God? Or do we put limits on him? Do we keep him in the grave? 
I mean, we read all the stories that he tells us. We know what he promised us. We see miracles. Maybe even some of us, our families, have experienced miracles, and yet we doubt. Our faith wavers. We put Jesus in a box. We keep them. We keep him in the tomb. Matthew 17, verse 20, Jesus tells them, Because of your little faith or unbelief, for truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there. And what? It will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. But we know mountains don't move. We know sometimes prayers aren't answered. When we're seeking Jesus, do we seek the risen Lord or do we put parameters, limitations on him? A week earlier, we see an entire nation that was looking for something as well. What were they looking for? A king. We see on what's known as Palm Sunday, they threw their huge crowds lined the, the road into Jerusalem. They laid down their cloak. They were putting down palm leaves. It says, on the next day, a large crowd had come to the festival, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Hosanna, which means Messiah, we are saved. But what were they really looking for? They were really looking for relief. Relief from what? Roman rule? Roman oppression? Heavy taxation? A religious elite that had 630 some odd rules that nobody in their right mind could possibly follow? They were looking for relief from their day in and day out drudgery of their lives. That's what they were looking for. And so by Thursday, when all of a sudden that relief had not come, some of these were likely in the same crowd that yelled, crucify him. What about us? When we seek Jesus, are we really looking for relief? You know, our elbow hurts a little bit. That would be nice if that didn't hurt so bad. Our bank accounts just don't quite have the funding in it that we had hoped to have. Our marriages, I'm disappointed in my marriage. I'm disappointed in my job. I need relief. Do we treat Jesus like a genie? If we rub the Bible hard enough, maybe he'll appear and give us three wishes and cure all of our problems, bring us relief from our day in, day out drudgery. Unfortunately, Jesus tells the disciples that I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Why? You will have suffering in this world. This isn't the fine print because it's in scripture, but sometimes pastors do the old, yeah, follow Jesus, and you won't suffer. We'll kind of mumble through that part of scripture because that doesn't preach well. We will have suffering in this world. Paul himself, the great apostle Paul, prayed for relief. Scripture tells us he prayed three times. My personal opinion, he probably prayed 3,000 times for relief. And what was the answer? No. My grace is sufficient for you. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Sometimes Jesus does answer our prayers and heals and provides. 
But if we are seeking Jesus simply to relief from the day in and day out, we are looking for the temporal rather than the eternal, we're missing the point of a relationship with Jesus. If we go back to the story of the very first king, if you recall back then the Israelites had occupied uh, Israel under the command of Joshua. Joshua ruled the nation for a number of years. He passes, and after his passing, the country is ruled by a series of men God chooses called the Judges. And we get to the last of the Judges, uh, Samuel, and the Israelites come to Samuel, and they're not satisfied with this arrangement. And so they approach Samuel to go to God and say, we want a king. We're seeking a king. Okay? Why are they wanting a king? Well, Scripture tells you the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king. Verse 20, then we will be like every other nation. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. The people really weren't ha- to ha- looking for a relationship with God. They weren't looking to be set apart. They were looking to be like everyone else. When we seek Jesus, do we seek him to provide us things so we can be like everyone else? The expression called keeping up with the Joneses, hopefully nobody in here is named Jones, and I'm not picking on you if that's the case, but keeping up with the Joneses, it's competing with them, trying to keep go with everything that they have. And we need to understand as Christians, we are not immune to that outside influence, but we as a church, churches are not immune to that. There are a lot of examples of pastors, men and women, standing in pulpits just like this that are preaching, you should be happy. They preach what I call the Oprah theology. You know what that is? You get a car, you get a car, you get a car, everyone gets a car. However, well, that's not what Scripture tells us. And Paul says, Romans 12, 2, many of you memorize this. It says, do not be conformed to this age. Instead, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may discern what is good, pleasing, and the perfect will of God. Are we looking to be like everyone else? And churches, hey, we're not immune either, right? What do we say? Hey, we need to stand up this particular program. Why? Because the other church has that. When we look for God's will in our lives, are we looking to be transformed, to be different, to be sanctified, to be set apart? Are we looking to be like everyone else around us? Going back just a bit further in the history, we find the Israelites in the Sinai Desert, right? If you recall, they were in Egypt under the oppression of slavery and Pharaoh, and they pray out to God, and God answers their prayer through Moses and Aaron and and the, the awesome miracles against Pharaoh. And they find themselves out in the desert, and God is providing food, and he's providing water, and we finally find them, they're sitting at the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up to commune with God. And the people get a little bit restless. They're looking for something. In Exodus 32, it says, When the people saw that Moses was delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us. 
who will go before us because this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. As we know, Aaron asked them to give all the gold, and he takes the gold and he fashions this golden calf. And it says, later on it says, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. I believe I can't even say this. Early the next morning they arose, they offered burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat, drink, and got up to party. What were they looking for? They wanted something tangible to worship. Something they could point to and say, yes, this is our God. Moses was somewhere. There was a cloud over a mountain. They didn't really understand that. They needed something tangible. What about us? When we're seeking God, do we need to have something tangible in front of us? Or are we willing to understand the awesome, sometimes mysterious nature of our Lord? Now, we look at this and we say, ah, well, we would never worship some golden calf sitting in front of us. Well, maybe not. But what do we worship? Our jobs? Our bank accounts? If you have investments, you're probably worshiping the fact that it was a very good year this past year. We worship these things, our abilities, our careers, and they become our idols. Our golden calf. When we seek Jesus, do we seek the mysterious God or do we need to have something tangible that we hold on to? We worship the created rather than worshiping the creator. Now we can continue to go on. There's many other examples that we see throughout scripture. Uh, One thing that is uh, one of the rules of filling in for the pastor is you don't keep people longer than the pastor normally does. That's generally bad form. Although if I did that, you guys would never ask me to do this again. So there is a balance I'm trying to weigh here. But I do want to look at one final example because none of this should come as any surprise to us if we understand Scripture and we study it because it started from the very beginning. We go back to Adam and Eve. We go back to the Garden of Eden. And by definition, the Garden of Eden was perfection. Perfect temperature, right? You had temperature day and night. You had all the food uh, in front of you. You didn't even have to worry about what to wear. When I look at this, I'm saying, wow, this is perfect. This is absolute perfection. The only thing that's missing is pizza. If there was pizza in Scripture, then that would have been absolutely fantastic. No, but the best part is this. They got to spend time with God. He walked with them and talked to them. All of that. That's awesome. But what were they looking for? That wasn't enough. Genesis 3, the serpent talking to Eve says, No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, meaning the the fruit of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Being with God was not enough. They were looking to be like God. God. When we are seeking Jesus this year, are we 
looking to be like God? Well, of course not. No, absolutely not. Yet, how many of you have laid out your yearly plan? You're going to teach Bible study. Great. You're going to go on two missions trips. Have already that figured out. You're going to sing in the choir. We don't even have a choir. I'm going to build a choir, and I'm going to lead the choir, and we're going to sing in the choir. That's my plan for this year, God. I'm going to go ahead and submit this up to you for approval in three copies, if you could just sign off there in triplicate. When we are not subject to the will, and we impose our will on God, when we have our plan and we ask God to come alongside of us and approve it, in essence, what we're saying is we want to be like God instead of being subject to God. James talks about this. James says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while then vanishes. Verse 15 is key. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. What I find is, as I was in the Army for 21 years, as you know me, I'm a planner by nature. I like control, but I have to be careful that when I consult with me, myself, and I, I'm picking the wrong three people to consult with. And I need to be consulting with God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. This year, what are we looking for? We're now uh, three weeks into the new year. I don't know, have anybody make any New Year's resolutions? Anybody? If you, if you made any New Year's resolutions, statistically, the resolution's probably something in regard to health. Eat better, lose some weight, uh, get in better shape. That's why gym memberships spike in the early January, and then they're, you know, uh, and in like February. And if you uh, made any resolutions and you're still keeping it, congratulations, you're one of 8%. Statistically, 92% of everybody who made a resolution has already broken it by now, three weeks in. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with making a resolution. Anytime you want to try to improve yourself, that's, uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but my issue with resolutions is, in a general whole is they tend to be really very self-centered. It makes sense. What we, can we control? I'm going to eat better this year versus I'm going to solve the, the nuclear crisis in North Korea. I can control one. I can't control the other. So resolutions tend to be somewhat self-centered. I heard this on Caleb. They're sharing this, and some of you may have heard this, and it kind of struck me in the same vein. A pastor asked his congregation this. If God answered every one of your prayers this year, would anyone else's life be affected other than your own? Hmm. We've seen throughout Scripture that if we are looking for something, the nature of that action tends to be inward focus. It tends to be about us. What's in it for us? The grammar supports that. Looking for is a is a short, it's verb, it's, it's, it has a short duration, and so when we look for something, we don't find it, we move on to something else. The here and now, the temporary, and so if we can't find it, we'll move on to something else. So this year I'd offer up 
a different example from Scripture. That instead of looking for something, we look forward to something. That's not the same thing. To look forward to is something that means you're excited or, or, or pleased about something that's going to happen in the future. You are excited and focused on it and think about this. When you look forward to something, oftentimes wherever you are today doesn't seem quite as bad, right? If you are going to Cancun this weekend, the fact that you're in cold weather today is not so bad because I'm looking forward to sitting on the beach next week. If I'm looking forward to eating pizza on Saturday... I can do the rice cakes and grapefruit the rest of the week because I know I'm going to be eating pizza on Saturday. I'm looking forward to something. We see this actually in the scripture. If we continued on in Acts, the disciples, what do they do? After they stop staring in this, into heaven, they go to Jerusalem. Why? Because they were looking forward to something. What were they looking forward to? Jesus told them, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is coming. And so even though their, their leader had just ascended, they weren't really sure what was going to be happening now, they were looking forward to something. They came together in verse 14, Acts 1, verse uh, 14, it says they were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary and the mother of Jesus. They prayed, they were excited, they were looking forward to that day. And so when we take that posture of looking forward to something rather than looking for something, we all of a sudden, it brings certain scripture that we've read about in the, Old, in the New Testament that we've like, man, I just, that's a hard one to understand. But it's less hard when you understand it from this context. If you're looking forward to something, you're more likely to deal with what's here and now. What can we look forward to? We can look forward to the day when there's no more suffering and no more pain. When's that going to be? I don't know. But I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to the day when I get to see Jesus face to face. I'm looking forward to living in that room that Jesus told us he went ahead to prepare a space for us. I'm looking forward to being reunited with our loved ones. When we look forward to this, when we're able to, to deal with scriptures like this. So the New Testament, we see all these writers. James says this. We read this all the time. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. What? Why can he say that? Because he's looking forward to that day when those trials will actually have a benefit. Because he says in verse 3, you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. He's looking forward to that day. Peter writes, even if you should suffer for righteousness. How can he say this? Because he's looking forward to that day. John says, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Doesn't matter if we're looking forward to that day. And Paul writes in Romans, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of that is going to be revealed to us. He's looking forward to that day. And to bring us back to Philippians, Paul writes this. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. How can he write that? Because he's looking forward to that day. 
So in 2018, what are we looking for? Or can we say, let's be looking forward to something down the road? If you uh, are here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I don't know how you can really be looking forward to much. If that's you, please come and talk to us. Let us help you through that. If you are looking forward to an opportunity to worship with a family of believers that are imperfect, we can help you out there too because we're here today. I would ask you all that if this year, rather than inwardly focused, rather than, than thinking about us, rather than looking for something, let's look forward to what this year can bring for this faith and family and community and nation. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we can be so fickle and narrow-minded and short-sighted, and yet you still love us. Matter of fact, even before we came to know you, when we were still your enemy, you still loved us. My prayer is that for all of us, we can fix our eyes on the future, fix our eyes on what is to come, and that joy that we have knowing that will just permeate everything we do in the here and now. My prayer is for the eternal and not the temporal. My prayer is that we all take that posture. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.